Ian Butler seized the moment at last month's Marathon Project, running a nearly seven-minute PR of two hours, nine minutes, and 45 seconds, joining an exclusive group of sub-210 American men. Butler's underdog journey has followed a serpentine path from high schooler who held a single Division II scholarship offer to a post-collegiate runner who nearly quit the sport before joining his current training group, and now a top five finisher in the deepest American marathon field ever assembled. But Ian's story is much greater than the sum of his accomplishments. He suffered two traumatic brain injuries as a child, the first as a baby leaving him in a coma. Running eventually provided him an outlet and an anchor. In his words, it saved his life. Here's Ian Butler and Mile 71 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Ian, welcome in, and congratulations on your great race in Arizona. Thanks. Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty cool day for a lot of guys. It was a good day for American marathoning as well. Absolutely. You know, I'd like to start right there. I guess guys going under two ten, the best performance it was we've seen overall in a single race. What do you make of just the day in general, and what it means for American distance running right now? Well, I think what was cool was you had guys in there who had never been in a big marathon before. I mean, the, there were a couple guys who have run the Chicago's, who've run the New York's, but a lot of those guys, this was their second or third marathon. They had qualified for the trials, they had run the trials, and then they ran this. So I think it was a good day for a lot of guys to showcase their capability in the marathon and I think with the conditions we were given and the course that was provided by Ben Rosario and his crew we were set up perfectly to do that and going into it I knew a lot of I saw the entry list so I knew the capabilities of a lot of those guys I'd raced against them before and so I just wondered how many guys we'd have under 210 I didn't know I didn't know how many guys were going to go for it but going into it, I definitely looked at that list and knew that there was going to be a pack that was going to be under 210. And so it was just interesting to be in the race and see how everything turned out in those closing miles when stuff started to get a bit gritty. Yeah, so uh, while I was watching, I had a friend who is more of a casual fan of the sport text me and he asked who is this butler cat sitting on the outside of the lead pack and <laughs> at that moment I realized you know, how much I wanted to share your story and hear more of your story so before we get into that background tell me about what it felt like hanging in that lead group so I went into the race knowing I was really fit I had talked to I mean I train up in Boulder I live in Lakewood but when you train in Boulder, where there's so many runners, you, you bump into guys who are going to be in the field. And I had talked to some guys on their thoughts. And my initial approach to this was, you, just, you have to go for the sub-210. That's why we have it on. You have to just go for it. You're never going to be in a race like this where it's set up so perfectly, where pacers 
it's loops. So the pacers can check very often what pace they're on. The, I think the aspect of, I'd say the course and the pace groups made it so that really you just had to tuck in and just kind of get pulled along. Obviously, it was going to get hard at a time, but I think for that first half, it was all about just getting through on that pace. And then you just see where it goes from there. And for me, I came through half in a, a half marathon PR. I mean, I don't know what that – I think it shows I'm not the best half marathoner. <laughs> find out in the future what I can do in the half marathon. But I don't know. I just – I knew that I was capable of more than what I did at the trials, which is where my PR was from. And so I think knowing a lot of those guys who were in that pack, having raced them for years, I think really all of us were – we're on each, we kind of all were on each other's side. We all wanted just to see how many we can get. And then we knew it would become a race at about 18 or 20 miles. We just knew racing will start then. Let's just try and get as many guys to 18 to 20 as we can. Yeah, you just said you set a half marathon PR along the way. Yeah, I didn't have a watch, but there was a clock. So I was able to see, I think I came through in like 104, 29 or 28. So I guess seeing that, it, it helped build momentum. But like I said, I, I don't know how – I've just had a lot of rough luck with the half marathon. So I wasn't surprised. But it was positive just seeing that and getting that momentum. And that's interesting that you took it as a piece for confidence rather than any sort of concern of, oh, am I getting here too quick? You, yeah. fe- you felt really comfortable with what you were doing. Yeah, and I think – What was funny is, like I said, I know a lot of those guys personally who were in the pack, and a lot of them came up to me and joked with me after it because a lot of them knew that it was a big PR for me in the half. And I think you just kind of have to throw time out of the window when you're racing. I mean, if I had thought, oh, I've, I've never come through half this fast, I've never come through like 20K this fast, it would have become a much harder mental battle than it should have been because clearly the physical battle it wasn't an aspect it was just that mental barrier of I just PR'd in the half but I think it I think it was like 40 or 50 seconds and then you just got it I mean I just took that and I just thought second half like you just gotta stay where you are the race will come in those later miles just stay where you are and just see how it goes you just mentioned didn't wear a watch No, Uh, I don't. So I'm kind of an old school guy. Uh, (laughs) I train under Steve Jones, who's, I mean, he definitely has always encouraged it. And I think I've always been that way. I mean, I don't, I don't calculate miles per week. I do everything by minutes. A lot of our work is effort-based. So I think a lot of people get caught up with pace. The marathon is an easy race to kind of pace yourself through it. I think a lot of people treat marathons like time trials. And I like to treat the marathon kind of like a cross country race where if, if you just stick with a pack and you just cover moves that are made throughout the race, time will take care of itself. And at the end of the day, if you race for place, time's going to come. Cause I think sometimes whenever you see, like I, I, I obviously didn't know the splits, but in the marathon, seconds matter so say 
we're coming through at a 445 and we're hitting 445s for 15 miles and then 17 miles comes up and you hit a 510. I think that can mess with people a lot. And I think a lot of people do the math in their head really quick because it's really easy to do that whenever you start to get physically fatigued and people think, oh, I got to make up those seconds. And then they surge and then they die because of that surge that they put in or they just get mentally defeated. So I think racing without a watch and just going for place and being competitive, I think it helps you avoid self-doubt during races. I think it just helps you focus on what you're doing and not focus on the end result, just being in that race. Because at the end of the day, say I would have won the marathon project and I would have ran like 2.10.30 or 2.11. You can't be mad if you cross the finish line first. (laughs) You were the best person on the day. But if you see that you're on 2.10 pace and you start surging ahead to cover that 40 seconds, then you, it's, just, it's mentally and physically exhausting to do that. So I think you got to let the race come to you and just race for that race. So I think it's best just to leave the watch at home and just go with your natural instincts in a race. Yeah, and that's some sage advice. Uh, getting in tune with the level of effort, being in the moment in the race. Uh, we hear it all the time how great times are a product of just going out and racing hard and taking advantage of the opportunity. I know one person, well, there's probably multiple, but I know one person who can race with a watch, look at the pace and still be an insane competitor. Hmm. And I think that's, I mean, Scott Fobble, a kid who I grew up racing against is that person. I mean, I've heard him talk about races and I've, talk to him personally about races and I think it's amazing how he can check his pace but still check other people's moves it's something I know I can't do that's why I just leave the watch back and just focus in on what you're doing how you're feeling and just be in tune with that and I think like I said whenever you see a 10 second drop off which is completely normal in a marathon people can freak out about that and when you don't know it, it's happening. It's, you, it's kind of like ignorance is bliss, you know? Mm. Like you just, it doesn't affect you. Yeah, that self-awareness is tremendous. As that pack began fraying in the final miles, when did you hit a moment of truth and, and how did you respond? So I remember it was probably around mile 22. Noah and Martin made a martin was the one who i think made the huge move and things just we started racing and you know like the gloves were off at that point and i think i remember a friend of mine whose name is mick who got who placed right behind me i think no he was two spots behind me he ran 209.59 and i looked over at mick and i told him i just said hey like we gotta that's the pack like we have to be with that or we're going to be those guys who run 210.05 out here. And, and it's ironic because I think Mick ran 209.59. You know, it's, we had to make that move or else we were going to be 210.10 guys on a day when it, like five guys maybe would have been ahead of us, you know? So I think you just, like I said, you can't look at the watch and you just got to start racing. 
at some points. You know, you just got to start racing and passing people because whenever you're past people, you, you get that momentum. You get that, you're like, hey, I'm doing this. I'm feeling good. I'm passing. I'm moving forward because it's, it's pretty defeating to be suffering through the last 10K and you see that guy 100 meters ahead and you're just, you're looking at him and you just, he's always 100 meters ahead. You just have to pick it up catch up with that person, tell them like, hey, we got to go catch the next person. So I remember talking to Scott Smith and telling him the same thing. Like, hey, we got to get going. We got to start catching people. We got to catch fobs. And so not having the watch helps you in moments like those. Because if I had, I would have been looking at it and I would have been seeing, oh, I'm at 205. I got maybe a mile to go. I have to get, like, I have to run a 450 mile instead of just, seeing people and just knowing that if you are up with them, you're going to be golden. That's lost in the marathon. You, say you run 209.59 or 209.50, but if you were just, if you were just racing, you might've run 209.10 because if you would just surge past someone and got that momentum and maybe they helped you out after you passed them, then you would have cut set like 10 seconds off, maybe 40 seconds off. You just never know. But I think the only thing you can do in times whenever it gets really tough is just to forget pace and just go out there and race. Well, you just said you could have been a 210.05 or 210.10 guy if you hadn't responded. Yeah. But you, you did. You're a sub-210 runner. You're in a pretty yeah. elite group now. Massive marathon PR. Describe the thoughts and emotions in those final miles and immediately after you cross the line. Well, I mean, it, it, it hurt. It really hurt. Like, I, <laughs> I think I, I don't know. It, it was a, it was weird. It was kind of what was going through my mind was I knew the guys around me and I knew what they were capable of. And I knew that with the field we had, that the top five were all, that was for sure. Five guys are going under 210. I knew that. So what I was telling myself was you just got to be in that five or you just got to be in that six or whatever it is. I knew that there was going to be a couple guys who would probably have insane days. And there was, I mean, Marty Hare was two, oh, it was like 208.58. I mean, that's insane. And I knew that there were going to be outliers, but I also knew that there was going to be a pack that was right there at 209. And it was, I mean, I think third through sixth were all within 10 seconds of each other. So I, I saw something like that happening. I just told myself, I said, if you are here, if you are with these guys, you're going to be able to do it. So just focus on being with these guys and the time will take care of itself. Because I just didn't want to get caught up in how close I was or just start feeling, because I, mean, I was feeling pretty terrible. So I didn't want to think about that. I just wanted to think about, you got to be with these guys. And if you're just with these guys, you're going to get what you want. Did that result at all change your perspective on what's possible for the future? Um, <laughs> I def I'd say it, it did. I mean, I'd like to say that I always thought this was capable, but whenever you're going, I mean, I was a 216 guy before this. So a big part of me was, was thinking a bit of irrationally because by the numbers, there's no way. Any, if I would have told someone, hey, I'm going to go run sub 210, which I did. I did, I told some guys that it was probably like two weeks out and I was running with a group in Boulder and they actually laughed at me. 
they laugh and they laughed at me <laughs> which i probably would have laughed to myself too i mean it's a 216 guy saying oh i'm gonna have a nine i'm gonna have a seven minute pr i mean it's it's a big you're gonna have to pull out a big day to do that but i always thought it was possible i thought if any day i can do it it's going to be this day i know these guys it's going to be pace the pacing was spot on and i trusted that it would be and so i believed it but I knew it was crazy to believe it. It just takes, though, one person to believe. It didn't yeah, matter I mean, laughing at you. And like I said, you know, it's in the marathon, it's all about your momentum. You have to have that positive momentum the whole time. And I, I knew I could do it, and that helped me with that positive momentum. Bob's actually said this whenever he ran at Boston. He said, sometimes you just have to be a bit delusional to be a good runner. And I think it's exactly that. You have to believe you can do something no matter what the workouts say or what other people predict or what other people react to. You just have to do, believe you can do it. If you believe you can do it enough and you trust that you're fit enough, you can go out there and do it. I mean, I was a two, like I said, I was a 216 guy. I would say, tell that to a 220 guy. I would tell that to a 218 guy. What's kind of weird about marathoning is it's like you have a number written on your forehead, you know? You enter a room and everyone's like, oh, that's that 212 guy. That's that 211 guy. And everyone wants to be that, that lower number. And the other side of marathoning is you can be a 209 guy on one day and put in the same effort, same training, everything's going the same. And you can be a 220 guy. I mean, it's just, that just happens. I mean, there's crazy stuff that happens in a marathon. But you're never going to run faster unless you think you can. The minute you start thinking like, oh, this is hard. This probably isn't my day. That momentum builds up. That negative momentum builds up. And you just start carrying more weight. There's been, I think, every marathon I've done, I've debated dropping out. Everyone. And because it's hard. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to run a 220. It's hard to run a... 209 they're both hard and I think you just have to have that momentum and you kind of have to be a bit crazy because you have to just keep pushing yourself because that's the only way you're going to achieve it hey regardless of the time it's hard just to finish yeah I mean I mean I thought I was going to drop out at mile 14 I mean I felt terrible I didn't know if I could keep it up I didn't know what was going on. I mean, but I knew if I just stayed in the back of that pack and I moved to the back of that pack at that point, I just told myself, you just got to move to the back, take a deep breath, relax. And there was a time where I told myself, you got to move to the front. Because I think one thing that is underestimated in running, and I learned this in cross country, is um, you get a lot of adrenaline whenever you lead a race. You get a huge boost of adrenaline. Everyone feels it. So I think whenever you're feeling really terrible, just surge to the front for a bit. Just get a little bit of adrenaline going. Keep it for a minute. I mean, you don't have to put 100 meters on. Just take to the front for just a little bit. Just pass to the front of someone. Just get a little bit of adrenaline because it can go a long way. That's what I did at one point, well, multiple points during the race. I just went to the front, got that adrenaline, felt good held it there for a couple minutes. And then I thought, okay, I'm feeling good. I can just go back and relax now. So that's exactly what I did. Again, it comes back to, you just have to have all that positive thoughts running through your head. 
because if you're thinking, oh, I'm in the back of the pack, I'm fighting to hold on here. I'm just, I mean, I'm two seconds, a minute away from getting dropped, then you will. Like if you stay in that position, you're gonna get dropped. And then you get dropped 20 meters. It looks a whole lot more than 20 meters. And then it grows to 40. And then, you know, it just keeps getting worse from there. So you just have to put in 30 seconds or 10 seconds can change your marathon time by five minutes. If you just move to the front, start feeling positive again, and then settle back into what you were doing. Because it's, it is, it's a huge mental game. A lot of people see it as, you know, you're, you're out and you're clicking off splits, but really it's all about just, you have to be out and you have to be present in the race. Splits are great, but what happens whenever you turn a corner and there's a headwind and you're naturally gonna like fall off 10 seconds per mile? You can't, be, you can't think about that. Let's take a step back now. Right. The, the enormity of this accomplishment begins with the health issues from your childhood that make this story just so unique and special. Could you share more about the traumatic injuries you suffered and how those shaped your youth? So the first one that I had when it was whenever I was a baby. And uh, I think, I mean, I don't really remember that one. The, the second one I had though, I was five years old and I have brief memories of what it was like to be in the hospital during that. And I think growing up, it definitely, it definitely, it was different. It's, it's different whenever you're, I wouldn't say I was complete, like I spent time going back from special ed to the, the normal classes my whole time growing up. And a lot of it, I just, you just have to learn how to cope with it. You just have to learn how to adjust to what your thought process is. Like with me, I lost a lot of, I, my short-term memory is terrible. I think over the years, it's gotten a lot better, but growing up, I had to write down everything. Whenever I was in college, they did a story on it. And I, I would have to write down everything that was told to me. Like if you just told me like, hey, we're gonna have a meeting at three, I would have to write that down or else the minute I left that room, I would forget about it. Another aspect of it was I couldn't pick up on stuff as quickly. Um, school was always really hard for me and I, I couldn't pick up on, um, I would say, learning strategies as quickly. Like when kids were learning how to do their times tables or kids were learning how to organize their school day, I couldn't put that together like all of them could. I couldn't really connect certain things in school. I was always really stubborn with it. I always have been, I'm a pretty stubborn person, but I, I was offered help and a lot of the times I didn't want to take that help. And I just wanted to figure it out myself. And it took a lot of years of struggling through school. But I think in college was really whenever I started to accept like, hey, I have to start writing down things. I have to start making a schedule. I have to really write down everything that's going on or else I'm just gonna get lost because I would. I would forget assignments that were assigned that day. I would forget everything the minute I walked out of that classroom. So it was tough. I mean, that, 
that is a, a part of growing up that was tough for me. And I remember I had a teammate, Ryan Haby, who was a phenomenal runner, who unfortunately had a traumatic head injury while he was in college. And I remember talking to Ryan and Ryan was asking me, like, hey, what's it like? Like, what's it like going forward? And I told him that I didn't really know because I, the differences between Haby and I were, Haby remembered what it was like to be, <laughs> to be normal. And I, I didn't know, I didn't, I knew, I didn't know what it was like to live without having memory issues or without having thought processing issues. So a lot of it shaped probably who I am just with, I always felt like, I guess it put kind of like a chip on my shoulder where I was always told, okay, you need to, you need to meet this person. You need to meet with, we need to go over your individual education plan. We need to have a meeting. We need to talk about how you're progressing through school. And, all, and that really pissed me off. I would have to have these meetings and my friends would, like the, my friends and their parents wouldn't have to attend these meetings. And so I think I always grew up just being a bit pissed off about having to go through certain steps and go through certain phases that other kids didn't. But I wouldn't be who I am today or probably who I am as an athlete without that. I mean, I can't say that, but I think it helped a lot with who I am as an athlete because I'm just kind of a chippy person. Like I said, I mean, I, I was running with a bunch of roots guys. and I told them, I was like, I'm going to break 210. I don't care. I'm going to break 210. It's going to happen again. I'm going for it. And either I'm going to burn up and die or I'm going to break 210. Growing up like that helped me develop this mindset. What did running mean to you as you moved through school? And how was that an outlet for you? So, I mean, it sounds kind of dramatic, but I mean, running really did save my life. I was in ninth grade. I was in a seventh through ninth middle school. And I wasn't in a very good place. I wasn't doing well in school. I wasn't really doing the right things outside of school. And I don't really like saying this because some of these guys are still my friends today. I got kicked out of middle school and I transferred to Green Mountain High School. And whenever I went to Green Mountain, a lot of the guys who I knew, they weren't cross country athletes. <laughs> they weren't athletes. And so my mom told me, she said, like, you're gonna, you're gonna run cross country. I'm signing you up. You're gonna do it. And I hated it. I, I couldn't believe it was happening. And I mean, I was like, that's what all the dorks do. I mean, like I hated football. I hated basketball, but like cross, at least those guys are like big and get chicks cross country runners. They're, like I could, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that she was making me do it. I was really pissed off. And she told me I had to do it for one season. So I showed up on the first day. I knew one kid on the team and I had met him through, I used to build trails for Jefferson County and he worked that job with me. And so I knew one kid and I didn't really like any of the varsity athletes. I, I mean, I just, I didn't fit in. I just didn't, they didn't grow up around the same people I did. It just, I didn't fit in with them. I remember <laughs> Like, I'm, I'm a chippy person. <laughs> I get, I mean, I'm, and I remember I, I just, I hated these guys so much. I hated them. And I hated losing to them, which was even weirder for me. Like, I hated, I wanted to be better at what they were happy with. I mean, my mom was forcing me to be there. 
but I wanted to beat them at something they like to do because I knew that would piss them off the most. And like I said, I didn't fit in with these guys. I got, I mean, a lot of them kind of made fun of me. I didn't come from the same background that they came from, but I remember running, like it, it felt good to do it. It just, I finally felt like I had a kind of an outlet for everything. And I mean, I was a, I was a pretty good skateboarder before I was a runner, but I don't know if I would have graduated high school if I didn't run. I definitely wouldn't have been in college. That's for sure. Like that's, I can guarantee that. High school, I think it would have been 50-50 if I had graduated or not without running. College, definitely all because of running. And so it was cool. I mean, it was, it was cool that, I mean, for, for it starting out that way, that now where I'm at now, but I definitely, if you would have asked 15-year-old me like, or told 15-year-old me, like, hey, you're going to be a 209 marathon in one day, I would have I, I, I don't even know if I would have laughed. I probably just would have walked away. I wouldn't have believed you at all. Well, you're a great example of the progression that can happen with patience and perseverance. You ran a, a 444 mile and just under 17 minutes for 5K as a high schooler. Those are good yeah. times. It's modest by elite standards, right? Tell us about your development and the advice you'd give to runners with similar goals. So... I ran a 1650 and the 1650, I don't know how it happened. I really don't. Cause I mean, on the track and on cross country, it just, I just always have been a better cross country runner, but I only ran 1650 once. I was mostly a 17 minute guy. And I think I've done pretty well at like adjusting to each level of running in college. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a great college runner, but I definitely would say I adjusted to D2 running. I was a two-time All-American in cross-country. I ran 23.30 for the 8K in cross-country. But I think one thing that has stayed the same throughout is I just never, I never settled. And I always was able to take a good performance and not brew on it too long, but just be able to just say like, okay, I've, I've reached here. Now I got to set my goals here. And then once I got here, I, was, I set my goals here. And I think I've, I've done pretty well at adjusting to every level of running. And I don't really know how it happened, to tell you the truth. It still kind of shocks me that I was able to adjust. But I think the biggest part is just that men, the mentality has to stay the same. You just have to go out and compete. And I hated losing in high school. I hated losing in college. And I did a lot of losing in college and a lot in high school. I've done a lot of losing after college and high school. But just that competitiveness, you just got to go out and compete. That has been the one aspect that has kept me progressing forward. I've always been a competitor. And I think the other aspect is you have to be able to grow as an athlete as well. You have to be able to start to learn to read your body and know whenever you're pushing it too hard and know where that line is and know what days you can go all out and know what days you have to just hang back. And I think that was something I really struggled with in college, which led to a pretty inconsistent college career. And I think in high school, I mean, I was all out every day. It didn't matter. I was going to be all out everything I did because I didn't like the runners. 
I didn't want to lose anybody. So I was going to be all out. I was going to run with anybody, no matter what. And there's probably a lot of great stories my high school coach can tell you of me running with the state champion for a mile in a 5K race and then just dropped, just getting dropped, just terribly. That mentality has been one of the biggest factors in the development from a 1650 guy to a 209, 40 guy. Biggest advice I could give anybody who wants to progress through things is you got to keep up a mentality of wanting to put in the work and wanting to compete and just not settling. Like if, like say you want to go break 17 in a road 5k, you can read all the articles you want. You can do all the fancy training that you can find online, but you really have to just go out and compete. It only takes one huge hard effort to break through. And once you get that first effort done, then you have to do it again. Cause there's all just, you, if you just keep that up and you keep going to the well, you're gonna progress in races, but you have to be smart in training. Cause a high school kid who's 17 minutes, listen to your coaches, but on race day, just, just go, just take a risk, just go for it, take a risk. If you run 1730 and it didn't work out, Take what you can from the race, but you're never going to be disappointed if you just, if you left it all out there. And I think a lot of people have a hard time because they running such an analytical sport. We see, we know what other people's times are. We know what our times are. You have to be able just to throw that to the side. You have to just ignore what your PR is before, and you have to focus on going out and just competing. If you feel like crap after a race, you're going to be happy because you know you gave it all. If you go out there and you play it safe, I don't know, I think a lot of people can probably relate to this. The worst feeling ever is whenever you run a race and you finish and you think to yourself like, oh man, I could have ran way faster if I just would have pushed this moment. If I just would have gone with that guy, I know I could have gone with him. You just have to be able to risk it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, being a D2 runner at Western State. On the stage that you're on now, does being a D2 runner add anything to that chip on your shoulder? It's funny. It's really funny. I mean, Noah is a good friend of mine, Noah Drotti. And Noah Drotti's a D3 guy. Yeah. And him and I have joked about it. And it's, it, it is funny. It is, you know, I knew a lot of great D2 runners. I do. You know, there's a lot of great D2 runners out there. I mean, I've always said that the top 10 in D2 can compete with the top 10 in D1. And a lot of D1 guys get really pissed off when I say this. Oh, Ian, there, there's no question that the conference you ran in, regardless of division, is one of the best in distance running in the country in the RMAC. They're a great program. Yeah, I mean, I was running, I was fortunate whenever I was in the RMAC. It was a very intense conference. It was very good. I was running against guys who were, they were representing their home countries whether it was Australia, Ireland, UK, there were guys who were D2 or D1 talent who I was running against. And I've always said the top 15 in D2 can compete with the top 15 in D1. I think D1 obviously has more depth. That's something you can't debate. I think the top 50 in D1 are going to, they're just going to sweep the floor with the top 50 in D2. But I think a lot of that is mental. I think, you know, whenever you're running for a, you're running for like Cal State East Bay. So I knew the, I know the coach down there. He's a very good guy. But again, it's a school where 
you know, if you say Cal State East Bay at a marathon, no one's going to know what you're talking about. Again, people tend to, they tend to look to these big schools as they already have it in the bag. Like if you run for Oklahoma State, an Oregon, a Stanford, you're a top tier runner. Doesn't matter. When in reality, I knew a lot of guys in D2 in my conference and in other conferences who could have easily made those teams, who could have easily competed with those guys. And I think just the big difference is D1, D2. It's just the name. I mean, I, I think it would be pretty cool to see it just maybe if they just did it once. If they just had D1, D2, D3 all go together. It'd be a nightmare of a race, but it'd be cool. I think it'd be really cool to see just to see what those D3 guys do, to see what those D2 guys do. Being at the level I'm at now, it is. It's, it's weird being a D2 guy. But a lot of people forget about D2 guys. Tyler Pinnell is a good friend of mine. That guy's been a great American runner, still is, on the American uh, road circuit and in the American marathon. And everyone forgets he went to Western State. Cross country isn't football, you know? It isn't basketball. And I think a lot of people just, just kind of wipe it over with that same brush. A D2 cross country team can be just as competitive as a D1. It's just funding. That's the only thing that's different. Some of these guys didn't have good, good enough grades to get D1 scholarships. They were D1 talent. They just didn't have good enough grades to get D1 scholarships. Another cool thing about D2 is like, and I don't, I don't really like when people say this because I think it discredits D1 coaches. There's a lot of great D1 coaches. But D2 develops a lot of great talent. D2 takes those 1550 guys, those 1610 guys, and turns them into 1330 guys, 1340 guys. D1 takes those 1430 guys and turns them into 1330 guys. I mean, those guys were already stars whenever they walked on campus. So I think a lot of it would change if more D1 and D schools competed against each other. People would see that they're not so separated talent-wise. Hearing you describe the development you see at Division II schools and how people are underestimated, yet the level of competition, it just feels like it fit you. It just seems like it was perfect for you. Yeah, I'm, well, there weren't too many schools that w wanted to take me on. <laughs> I was recruited to one school. I was recruited to Metro State. I, li I mean, I liked Metro. I almost signed with Metro. But the funny story is uh, my high school assistant coach was Jen Michael, who's the head coach at Western State. He was her childhood doctor. And so he told her, he said, I, I, we have this kid. We don't know. We think he's going to be good. I mean, he has a lot of potential. He's going to run with whoever you have. Whether he's going to keep up with him, we don't know. But he's going he's gonna to try. And so she took a chance on me when I think a lot of other schools didn't. It was cool. I mean, I, I never thought I'd be hanging out with runners, and I was. I mean, Weston was, whenever I arrived at Weston, we had a very good team. We just, the brotherhood in that team, it was amazing. I mean, I got, I got guys I ran with in 2010. I talked to them on a weekly basis. At Weston, we just, we had this camaraderie that you have to have to be a good school. I think we were really hard on each other and it definitely wasn't easy being on that team. We gave each other a lot of crap, but we all knew 
at the end of the day that we all just wanted to win. There were a lot of years at Weston where I just didn't feel like I fit in at all. But I think what brought me back to it was Weston just has a very good alumni presence. Whenever I was there, I was in touch with some very talented runners, like Michael H., who's always been a great mentor for me, was a great mentor for me when I was at Western, is a great mentor for me now. I talked to Michael H. a couple of days ago because he heard about the marathon project. I mean, he's always given me really good advice and he was a phenomenal runner. That aspect of you have a guy who was winning national titles in the early 2000s, talking to a guy who graduated Western in 2015. And then I've heard from guys who are running from Western in the 1990s. And, you know, I made the right choice and I'm definitely glad that I did. Yeah, you referenced Tyler and being the fastest marathoner in Western state history is yeah, not too well, shabby. I know. I was mad at them. I was so pissed whenever I saw that they uh, put that up on social media. Sure enough, I think it was not even like a minute went by from when I saw that put up. I get a text from Tyler and Tyler's like, oh, I mean, he's beyond happy for me. Definitely beyond happy for me. But he said what I expected him to say, which is like, hey, my next marathon, I'm coming for that time. Like, I'm coming for that time. I'm running 208. That's just how we were whenever I was there too, where if Tyler runs 208, awesome. I'm going to run 207. And I'll always be happy for whatever Tyler's accomplishments are. I mean, I think Pinnell and I, Pinnell was a very good role model for me when I first got there. I went to middle school in Golden. Pinnell grew up in Golden. Pinnell was one of the first people who I met from the team. And Pinnell definitely took me under his wing, even to today. I mean, like, if you look at Pinnell's career, that guy's insane. I mean, I'm scared to raise him. He's placed fourth, no, fifth and 12th at the Olympic trials. It's a great career. But I also think people better watch out for Pinnell right now because Pinnell's pissed. Runs fast when he's pissed. <laughs> he's like me. He holds a grudge. <laughs> he's going to remember it. Pinnell's going to come for the marathon. He's going to be running fast. Hey, you brought up Steve Jones, the yeah. former world record holder who you work with with the Boulder Harriers. Tell us a favorite uh, Steve Jones story or lesson or workout from the legend. So what's funny is, is I met Steve Jones whenever I thought I was done with running. And Steve and I always joke about just how bad I looked. I looked terrible when I met Steve. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but I had a round face. I was way out of shape. I mean, I had run like 20 minutes maybe a day for a week before I met Steve. I remember Deanna Ardry, who is on the team with me, saw me and just said, you know, she, she inspired me to get back into running. She's like, you need to start running again. Just talk to Steve. And so I thought I was done. I was like, ah, whatever. I'll just run for like 20 minutes a day, and then I'll meet this guy. And I, from day one, Jonesy and I were on the same page. Jonesy's a lot like me. He's intense. He's an intense competitor. But he also goofs around. He's a lot like me in that aspect, too. The cool thing about Jonesy is Jonesy will never talk about his own accomplishments. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't really want you, us to talk about it. That was his, he always says, like, that was my life. This is your life. A lot of people would see Jonesy's old school way of training, and they wouldn't go along with it. It's not the glitz and the glam of, you know, the 16-mile the progression run at five-minute pace. 
it takes a lot of faith to be under Jonesy. But if you have faith in what he's doing is right, the results come. That guy knows what he's doing. And it's been great having a coach where we know each other a lot. If I have a bad race, Jonesy knows where I am. He knows what I'm doing. If I have a good race, Jonesy knows where I am. He knows what I'm doing. Having that connection with Jonesy has helped me out a ton. And I think it's helped him out a ton when coaching me. It's crazy to have a coach who, one, is such an accomplished athlete himself. I mean, he's former world record holder, a ton of some phenomenal wins in the marathon. And two, he's had a lot of great athletes. And I think all of us know that Jonesy's program works for people. And if you just believe in it, you're going to have a lot of success. That connection you have with him exemplifies that there's a lot of ways to be successful when you believe in the process that you yeah. are moving through. Ian, what's next now? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I want to run a half marathon. I think I need a, a new half marathon PR after this. Uh, this race opened me up to a lot of uh, possibilities. It also showed me the business side of things. Uh, I signed with Mark Wetmore, who's now my agent. And so going forward, it's going to be Mark and Jonesy who are going to be kind of guiding me through what my next steps are. I've had a goal for the last couple of years. I want to break the Colorado marathon record. That's been a, a big thing. I, since I got back from Mexico City, that's been a goal. Because I think I ran 2.22.04 in Mexico City. So I think I looked up the Colorado record and it's 2.18, like 30. Set by a Western guy, by the way, Chris Seamus. He's a Western alum. I think I can lower that. That's a big goal of mine. But right now, yeah, I'm not too sure what, what's next. I, I'm definitely going to have to do a major. I'm going to have to put myself in a bigger competition. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited what would come out of a running like a Boston or a London or a New York. Um, so I'd like to put one of those on the schedule. But I think right now I'm focusing on getting, yeah, getting the, a real half marathon PR. <laughs> well, Ian, regardless of, of what comes next, I think you've gained a lot of fans through this process. <laughs> Yeah, I think my Instagram followers doubled. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never been a big social media guy. I think if it helps people out, I'm all for it. I've always been pretty bad at it. It's just not one of my focuses. But, you know, it. I think what's cool about running is it's not like football, where a kid playing football in Lakewood, Colorado, is not experiencing the same things as Patrick Mahomes, you know? I mean, running, you just got, you have your shoes and you need some shorts and a shirt and that's all you need. You know, I think running is something that a kid can see and set goals along the way and just be able to accomplish that. And I hope that the 209 just shows a lot of local Colorado kids. Like, hey, I mean, 17 minute guy in high school stuck with it stuck with it at every level, didn't let bad seasons, bad years get to him, kept doing it, and he ended up running 209, which I don't know where that sits all time, but I mean, I think it's in the top 15 all time in America. I, hopefully, whatever I do from here 
backs that up. That's one concern of mine. I gotta back this up now. <laughs> and two on nine. I gotta my next performance has to be good, man. I'm on I'm on the radar now. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I hope some goofy kid from some town who can't really find a sport, doesn't really know where he's at, sees that I found a niche in running and can progress through there just like I did. There's no question you're going to be an inspiration for some younger runners. We're, we're so grateful for your openness and sharing your story and the grit and determination that have gone along with it. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you, Ian. We wish you the best coming up and let's get a half marathon PR in a half marathon and really <laughs> yeah, let one rip. Yeah, actual half marathon, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, thank you so much, Ian. Yeah, it's, for your time. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great talking to you. We apologize for the occasional static in the background in Ian's interview, such as the experience of 2020 and 21 and our dependence on technologies for connecting with one another. We're so grateful to Ian for spending time with us and privileged to help share his story. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can reach us with questions or content ideas at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time on Seconds Flat. And we have some exciting surprises waiting for you in mile 72.